Chapter Sixteen of Snarleyow by Frederick Marriott. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. In which we change the scene and the sex of our performers. We must now leave the cutter to return to Portsmouth while we introduce to our readers a new and strange association. We stated that the boats had been ensconced in a very small cove at the back of the Isle of Wight. Above these hung the terrific cliff of the Black Gang Chine, which to all appearance was inaccessible. But this was not the case, or the smugglers would not have resorted there to disembark their cargo. At that time, for since that period much of the cliff has fallen down, and the aspect is much changed, the rocks rose up from the water nearly perpendicularly, to the height of fifty or sixty feet. At that height there was a flat of about one hundred feet square in front of a cave of very great depth. The flat, so called in contradistinction to the perpendicular cliff, descended from the seaward to the cave, so that the latter was not to be seen either by vessels passing by or by those who might be adventurous enough to peep over the ridge above. And fragments of rock dispersed here and there on this flat or platform induced people to imagine that the upper cliff was a continuation of the lower. The lower cliff, on which this platform in front of the cave was situated, was on the eastern side as abrupt as on that fronting the sea to the southward, but on the western side its height was decreased to about fifteen feet, which was surmounted by a ladder removed at pleasure. To this means of access to the cave there was a zigzag path, used only by the smugglers, leading from the small cove, and another much more tedious by which they could transport their goods to the summit of this apparently inaccessible mass of rocks. The cave itself was large and with several diverging galleries, most of which were dry, but in one or two there was a continual filtering of clear pure water through the limestone rock, which was collected in pits dug for that purpose on the floor below. These pits were always full of water, the excess being carried off by small open drains which trickled over the eastern side of the platform. Some attention to comfort had been paid by the inhabitants of these caverns, which were portioned off here and there by sailcloth and boards, so as to form separate rooms and storehouses. The cookery was carried on outside at the edge of the platform nearest the sea under an immense fragment of rock which lay at the very edge, and by an ingenious arrangement of smaller portions of the rock neither the flame was to be distinguished nor was the smoke, which was divided and made to find its passage through a variety of fissures, never in such a volume as to be supposed to be anything more than the vapors drawn up by the heat of the sun. In this abode there were at least thirty people residing, and, generally speaking, it might be called a convent, for it was tenanted by women. Their husbands, who brought over the cargoes, 
returning immediately in their boat to the opposite shore for two reasons. One, that their boats could only land in particular seasons, and could never remain in the cove without risk of being dashed to pieces. And the other, that the absence of all men prevented suspicion, the whole of the interior smuggling being carried on by the other sex, who fearlessly showed themselves on every part of the island, and purchased their necessary supplies of provisions here and there, without exciting any misgivings as to the nature of their employment. A few isolated cottages, not far from the beetling brow of the cliff above, were their supposed abodes, but no one ever troubled them with a visit, and if they did, and found that they could gain no admittance, they imagined that the occupants had locked their doors for security while they were busied with their labors in the field. Accustomed to climb up the tortuous path from the cave to the summit, the women would, on the darkest night, carry up their burdens and deposit them in the cottages above, until they had an opportunity of delivering their contraband articles into the hands of their agents. And this traffic had been carried on for many years, without the government or excise having the slightest suspicion by what means the smuggling was accomplished. As we before observed, the great articles in request, and which were now smuggled from France, were alamodes and lute-strings. The attention of government had been called to check the admission of these goods, but hitherto their attempts had not been attended with much success. At the gray of the morning, after the attempt to seize the smugglers had been defeated by the instrumentality of Snarleyow, upon the top of the immense fragment of the rock which we have described as lying upon the sea-edge of the platform, was perched a fair, slight-made little girl, of about twelve years of age. She was simply clad in a short worsted petticoat and bodice of a dark color, her head was bare, and her hair fluttered with the breeze. Her small feet, notwithstanding the severity of the weather, were also naked, and her short petticoat discovered her legs halfway up the knee. She stood there within a few inches of the precipice below, carelessly surveying the waves as they dashed over the rocks, for she was waiting until the light would enable her to see further on the horizon. By those who might have leaned over the ridge above, as well as by those who sailed below, she might have been taken, had she been seen to move, for some seabird reposing after a flight. So small was her frame in juxtaposition with the wildness and majesty of nature which surrounded her on every side. Accustomed from infancy to her mode of life, and this unusual domicile, her eye quailed not, nor did her heart beat quicker as she looked down into the abyss below, or turned her eyes up to the beetling mass of rock which appeared each moment ready to fall down and overwhelm her. She passed her hand across her temples to throw back the hair which the wind had blown over her eyes, and again scanned the distance as the sun's light increased and the fog gradually cleared away. A sharp lookout, Lily dear. You've the best eyes among us, and we must have a clue from whence last night's surprise proceeded. 
I can see nothing yet, mother, but the fog is driving back fast. It's but a cheerless night your poor father had to pull twice across the channel and find himself just where he was. God speed them, and may they be safe in port again by this time. I say so too, mother, and amen. Do you see nothing, child? Nothing, dear mother, but it clears up fast to the eastward, and the sun is bursting out of the bank, and I think I see something under the sun. Watch well, Lily, replied the woman, who was throwing more wood on the fire. I see a vessel, mother. It is a sloop beating to the eastward. A coaster, child? No, mother, I think not. No, it is no coaster. It is that king's vessel, I think. But the glare of the sun is too great. When he rises higher, I shall make it out better. Which do you mean? The king's cutter on the station? The Jungfrau? Yes, mother, replied Lily. It is. I'm sure it is the Jungfrau. Then it is from her that the boats came last night. She must have received some information. There must be treachery somewhere. But we'll soon find that out. It may appear singular that Lily could speak so positively as to a vessel at a great distance. But it must be remembered that she had been brought up to it nearly all her life. It was her profession and she had lived wholly with seamen and seamen's wives, which will account for her technical language being so correct. What Lily said was true. It was the Jungfrau, which was beating up to regain her port, and having to stem a strong ebb tide during the night had not made very great progress. There are three other vessels in the offing, said Lily, looking around. A ship and two brigs both going down channel. And as she said this, the little thing dropped lightly from rock to rock till she stood by her mother and commenced rubbing her hands before the now blazing fire. Nancy must go over to Portsmouth, observed the mother, and find out all about this. I hardly know whom to suspect. But let Nancy alone, she'll ferret out the truth. She has many gossips at the point. Whoever informed against the landing must know of this cave. But we must introduce the mother of Lily to the reader. She was a tall, finely featured woman, her arms beautifully molded and bare. She was rather inclined to be stout, but her figure was magnificent. She was dressed in the same costume as her daughter, with the exception of a net worsted shawl of many colors over her shoulders. Her appearance gave you the idea that she was never intended for the situation which she was now in, but of that hereafter. As the reader may have observed, her language was correct, as was that of the child, and proved that she had not only been educated herself, but had paid attention to the bringing up of Lily. The most perfect confidence appeared to subsist between the mother and daughter. The former treated her child as her equal, and confided everything to her, and Lily was far advanced beyond her age in knowledge and reflection. Her countenance beamed with intelligence. Perhaps a more beautiful and more promising creature never existed. 
A third party now appeared from the cave. Although not in canonicals, his dress indicated his profession of a priest. He approached the daughter and mother with, Peace be with you, ladies. You forget, good father, replied the elder of the females. My name is Alice, nothing more. I crave pardon for my forgetting who you were. I will be more mindful. Well then, Alice, yet that familiar term sounds strangely, and my tongue will not accustom itself, even were I to remain here weeks instead of but two days. I was about to say that the affair of last night was most untoward. My presence is much wished for and much required at St. Germain's. It was unfortunate, because it proves that we have traitors among us somewhere. But of that and of the whole affair, I will have cognizance in a few days. And should you discover the party? His doom is sealed. You are right. In so important and so righteous a cause, we must not stop at aught necessary to secure our purpose. But tell me, think you that your husband will soon be here again? I should think not to-night, but to-morrow or the next he will be off, and if we can show the signals of surety he will land, if the weather will permit. Tis indeed time that I were over. Something might now be done. I would so too, father. It is a tedious time that I have spent here. And most unfitting for you, were it not that you labored in a great cause. But it must soon be decided. And then that fair lily shall be transplanted, like a wild flower from the rock, and be nurtured in a conservatory. Nay, for that the time is hardly come. She is better here, as you see her father, than in the chambers of a court. For her sake I would still remain, but for my husband's sake, and the perils he encounters, I wish that one way or the other it were decided. Had there been faith in that Italian, it had been so before now, replied the priest, grinding his teeth and turning away. But the conversation was closed at the appearance of some women who came out of the cave. They were variously clothed, some coarsely, and others with greater pretensions to finery. They brought with them the implements for cooking, and appeared surprised at the fire being already lighted. Among them was one of about twenty-five years of age, and although more faded than she ought to have been at that early age, still with pretensions to almost extreme beauty. She was more gaily dressed than the others, and had a careless easy air about her, which suited to her handsome slight figure. It was impossible to see her without being interested, and desiring to know who she was. This person was the Nancy mentioned by Alice in her conversation with Lily. Her original name had been Nancy Dawson, but she had married one of the smugglers of the name of Corbett. Her original profession, previous to her marriage, we will not dwell upon. Suffice it to say that she was the most celebrated person of that class in Portsmouth, both for her talent and extreme beauty. Had she lived in the days of King Charles the Second, and had he seen her, 
she would have been more renowned than ever was Eleanor Gwynne. Even as it was, she had been celebrated in a song, which has not been lost to posterity. After a few years of dissipated life, Nancy reformed, and became an honest woman, and an honest wife. By her marriage with the smuggler she had become one of the fraternity, and had taken up her abode in the cave, which she was not sorry to do, as she had become too famous at Portsmouth to remain there as a married woman. Still she occasionally made her appearance, and to a certain degree kept up her old acquaintances, that she might discover what was going on, very necessary information for the smugglers. She would laugh and joke, and have her repartee as usual, but in other points she was truly reformed. Her acquaintance was so general, and she was such a favorite, that she was of the greatest use to the band, and was always sent over to Portsmouth when her services were required. It was supposed there, for she had reported it, that she had retired to the Isle of Wight, and lived there with her husband, who was a pilot, and that she came over to Portsmouth occasionally to inquire after her old friends, and upon business. "'Nancy Corbett, I must speak to you,' said Alice. "'Come aside. I wish you, Nancy, to go over immediately. Can you go up, do you think, without being perceived?' "'Yes, Mistress Alice, provided there is no one to see me. "'The case is so important that we must run the risk.' "'We've run cargoes of more value than that. "'But still you must use discretion, Nancy. "'That's a commodity that I've not been very well provided with through life, "'but I have my wits in its stead. "'Then you must use your wit, Nancy. "'It's like an old knife, well-worn, but all the sharper.' "'Alice then entered into a detail of what she would find out "'and gave her instructions to Nancy.' The first point was to ascertain whether it was the cutter which had received the information, the second who the informer was. Nancy, having received her orders, tied the strings of her bonnet, caught up a handful of the victuals which were at the fire, and bidding the others a laughing good-bye, with her mouth full, and one hand also occupied, descended the ladder, previously to mounting the cliff. Nancy said Lily, who stood by the ladder. Bring me some pens. Yes, dear, will you have them alive or dead? Nonsense, I mean some quills. So do I, Miss Lily, but if you want them dead, I shall bring them in my pocket. If alive, I shall bring the goose under my arm. I only want the quills, Nancy, replied Lily, laughing. "'And I think I shall want the feathers of them before I am at the top,' replied Nancy, looking up at the majestic cliff above her. "'Good-bye, Miss Lily.' Nancy Corbett again filled her handsome mouth with bread, and commenced her ascent. In less than a quarter of an hour she had disappeared over the ridge. End of chapter 16 Recording by Arnold Banner, Thurmond, North Carolina